Presented by me, Olivia Hilton Pennant. And me, Matt Evan Green. Loading this week's sound. Please hold. You can't disentangle the university from the city, and the sooner that the university and the colleges start seeing that, the better it'll be for the city at large. Are you really showing appreciation, or is this at the expense of doing something more substantive? 12th of March, 2020. This coronavirus is getting serious. Ready to connect you to this week's sound. First up on Switchboard this week, it's Cambridge and Beyond, the segment where we take a look at one big story in Cambridge news and explore how it relates to events beyond the university by talking to some of the people behind the headlines. This week, we delve into the story of calls for colleges to support the efforts of Cambridge City Council by providing shelter for vulnerable people during the lockdown. As Varsity reported earlier this week, a motion which encourages colleges to make their vacant accommodation available to those in need and also provides clear guidelines on how to do so was passed with 98% of the vote at an online KUSU meeting on Monday evening. The motion asks colleges to pledge empty accommodation to the City Council's housing register for it to be allocated unconditionally to rough sleepers, domestic abuse victims, asylum seekers and released detainees, at a time when all these people will need shelter now more than ever. Any buildings pledged are to be managed by the Council, not the colleges themselves, and a similar thing has already happened in Oxford. Three PhD students co-authored the motion as part of the Cambridge University Sanctuary Initiative. The motion calls for colleges to allocate as much of their ensuite and hostel housing as possible, especially their off-site accommodation, to those in need during this public health crisis. To find out more, we spoke to Stella Swain, the KUSU Welfare and Rights Officer, and Matt Mahmoudi, a representative of the Cambridge University Sanctuary Initiative. I began by asking them why they think colleges have a particular responsibility here, and what exactly it is that the motion sets out to achieve. What Cambridge can offer is space. Um, we have so much space. Um, in fact, if you look at a map of Cambridge, most of Cambridge is Cambridge Colleges. Um, so if we can open up that space and allow people who really need it to access it, that's the kind of support that we can offer. It's saying as much as like colleges, you have a particular responsibility because of the amount of wealth and the amount of resources that you have available on the back of especially having returned your students um, or encouraged them to leave Cambridge on the basis that that accommodation would be used for vulnerable populations, for NHS staff, for people for whom it really matters. So again, it's following through on that promise on the one part. And on the second part, it's also saying, well, you have concerns in terms of logistics, and we've provided you with guidelines here, as well as connections, who can show you exactly um, how to utilize um, these spaces, and who can in fact do it for you. So you won't even have to lift a finger beyond offering that accommodation. What is Cambridge doing? in terms of uh, uh, pulling its weight during this crisis, right? What are colleges doing? Uh, it's all well and good and important, of course, that colleges take care take care of their elderly fellows. It's also important that college takes care of its students beyond shifting liability um, through encouraging students to go home. But equally, once you have shifted that liability and there is extra space, what do you do with that space? News has now emerged that King's College had already let out one of its buildings to the council before this motion was passed on Monday. Why is this motion still necessary? Yeah, so I mean, King's is only one college. Um, It was really good to hear that that happened. Um, But that came out of negotiations between some of the people who um, proposed this motion and the college to start with. 
So it's it's not kind of sprung out of nowhere. So, I mean, again, Kings is, is one president, right, which is really great. And it's really important that we amplify that president. The other problem is that because of the college structure of this institution, it's so easy to claim ignorance on the part of each of the constitution, uh, constituent colleges, which is something we see with a lot of other issues. But especially when it comes to this, raising the profile around what Kings has established and what it's managed to accomplish, as well as raising the profile around the issue of sanctuary for rough sleepers and from domestic violence, uh, from uh, victims of domestic, survivors of domestic violence, as well as for asylum seekers and refugees is incredibly important. And one of the ways in, we were in which we're managing to do that is through a sort of a two-pronged approach, I guess. Um, the first one is to do it through uh, demonstrating uh, a, a willingness and a vocal support for this uh, from a base of students. Um, so that means uh, getting this motion passed through the KUSU, and it means getting the, um, the motion passed uh, through JCR and MCRs. Um, once you've done that, you know, colleges can't claim that this isn't an issue that students don't care about. The reason why the motion matters at the KUSU level and at the JCR and MCR level at the institutional, at the individual colleges is precisely because it links them all together and it establishes a greater precedent than just the individual college, uh, you know, showing its goodwill. It's saying, look, you're following suit around a movement that is much bigger than just Pembroke or that is much bigger than just Kings. It has been suggested by some that colleges should provide this accommodation for free as they're not currently gaining money from vacant accommodation anyway, uh, so there's no additional loss involved. Added to this, as of the 27th of April, Cambridge City Council had apparently already spent more than 10 times the amount it was allocated by central government to address homelessness during the pandemic. King's is charging the council what it describes as a standard rate for the use of its hostel. Uh, do you think that's appropriate? If Cambridge colleges are just taking money from the local government where they don't really need to, I know we've seen that article um, of Varsity revealed that uh, the amount that colleges were expecting to see in losses this year. But it is worth remembering that that's only just double what Trinity paid to exit the USS pension scheme just last year. So it's actually kind of a drop in the water in terms of their huge assets. Um, it seems obscene to me that institutions that are this well endowed are asking for the council uh, to pay them in exchange for housing vulnerable populations. It would seem to me that given the exceptional nature uh, of the circumstances that the college finds itself in and the, the university finds uh, themselves in, in, in as, a, as a whole, that there would be um, some exceptions made uh, to uh, the uh, commodified nature of, of the institution. And finally, what do you think are the implications of this motion for relations between the university and the wider community in Cambridge? I think that it's really important that we counter at every possible opportunity, really, this myth that Cambridge exists outside of Cambridge, the city. I think it's something that could be quite powerful and something that bridges the gap between the college and the university's responsibility and duties towards the students, as well as its duties towards the, the community broadly. Um, the students are the community. We live in the city. You can't disentangle the university from the city. And the sooner that the university and the colleges start seeing that, the better it'll be for the city at large. Up next on Switchboard this week, it's Corona Board, where we take a deeper look at some of the ethical considerations and socio-political implications of the pandemic. To do this, Corona Board connects you with some of the most familiar coronavirus news stories, but from a variety of different angles.
This is the sound you can hear everywhere across the UK every Thursday at 8pm. People clapping, cheering, hitting pots and pans to show their support for the NHS and other key workers during this pandemic. Meanwhile, centenarian captain Tom Moore has raised over £30 million for NHS charities together after walking 100 lengths of his garden. But to what extent are these activities about supporting the NHS and its workers? And are they only a good thing? Early this week, I saw a Facebook post which seemed to address these questions head on. My name is Priyam Gopal. I'm a reader in the Faculty of English, um, and I work on post-colonial literatures, um, and I've recently done a book called Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonialism and British Descent. So you recently wrote in a post on Facebook about the dangers of compulsory collective rituals. You don't say that the rituals themselves are necessarily harmful, but what's dangerous is the way in which they are made to be compulsory. Do you think there's a difficulty here, not just around non-participation, but also around criticising the context in which these collective rituals are happening? The original uh, point of reference for the post was the pot-clanging rituals in India, which were called for by the uh, hard-right nationalist, uh, Hindu nationalist government. And it struck me that in India, people were doing it less as a show of solidarity and appreciation for emergency workers, although that might have been a part of it, uh, than as an act of kind of loyalty, nationalist loyalty to the government. And watching these rituals happen in the US and in the UK, it occurred to me that here too, there were undertones really of nationalism and of loyalty uh, to nation, rather than putting emergency workers and medical workers at the center of it. Um, and so my point was really about doing whatever you wish to, uh, to show appreciation, but to not turn it into a compulsory spectacle. Um, and we know, of course, that there was the case of a woman who was named and shamed on social media, not participating uh, on her street because she had fallen asleep or something. And I think what worries me is the strain of compulsory uh, participation and compulsory nationalism that sometimes accompanies these principles. Yeah, I noticed in the comments below your post, a doctor had said that they'd complained about the, the public clapping in light of the December general election and they'd had someone basically respond by saying that they were ungrateful for not appreciating uh, the claps. Is this collective ritual really an act of altruism for the NHS workers themselves or is there something else going on? Well there is clearly something else uh, going on because if you want to show appreciation and you want to clap or you want to uh, bang vessels, pots, whatever, fine, do that. But um, if you're showing appreciation, uh, you should not particularly be concerned with what your neighbor uh, or friend is doing or not doing. It's the point at which it becomes something in which everybody must join in order to show willing or to show that they're a decent person. That I start to worry about the compulsory nature of these rituals. The doctor that you're talking about um, is a Pakistani British doctor. Um, and I should say that I first started thinking about these rituals when uh, furious friends in the medical profession, nurses in particular, were saying, uh, you can spare us the clapping, you can spare us the pot 
banging, we need a personal protective equipment and we need better funding and we need for this pandemic to have been better prepared for uh, and we need to not be risking our lives. So um, I found them, uh, these uh, particular people, less than uh, thrilled about the you know, public displays of appreciation. Again, they don't represent all medical staff and I'm sure there are people who did appreciate it. I think that, that uh, undertaking rituals at the expense of more substantive forms of appreciation, that is something that the person that you're referring to and other medical professionals have drawn attention to. And I think, you know, telling a medical professional that she's ungrateful because she's not uh, particularly thrilled about the clapping, uh, that really tells you all you need to know, that, that it's not medical professionals uh, who are at stake, for some people anyway, uh, but the fact of doing a, a ritual that has national dimension. So would you agree that collective actions that make a lot of noise, do you think these can in fact have a silencing effect? I think they can have a silencing effect. I, I want to be careful and say that it's not an either or situation. I could completely imagine a situation where we have a well-funded NHS, we have uh, well looked after, protected doctors and nurses, and we show them our appreciation on Thursday evenings or, or whatever uh, you know the case might be. Uh, but I think that there is a danger now, uh, particularly coming from politicians who have done less than enough to protect medical staff, to pay them properly, to uh, ensure that they're not overworked, to look after junior doctors, to bring in more nurses into the profession or to pay nurses more. If you're not willing to do all these things, but you're willing to ostentatiously bang pots outside, you know, Downing Street or Buckingham Palace or whatever, that's the point at which you have to say, well, are you really showing appreciation or is this at the expense of doing something more substantive? I also spoke to Cameron White, who's written a piece of varsity on the dangers of venerating Captain Tom Moore. I began by asking him how he found it writing a critical piece about a much beloved national figure and the issue he has with how Captain Tom's fundraising has been covered in the media. I've got quite a personal link to this because um, I, I, I don't know him, but he lives, um, he lives five minutes up the road from me. And, um, what, and one of my best mates is a family friend of his. A lot of the people who are going to be reading it who know me are local in the area and might have links with him. So I've been like really treading on eggshells but um so i had to try and find the right balance i wanted to use the idea of the veil because it's like we're being blindsided by a lot of this nobody can uh, disrespect fundraising efforts in particular i think any um attempt to raise uh, money to pump some resources into the effort um is a good thing the problem is is when that military uh, you know the veneration um becomes a political device yeah i, I don't understand this recourse that we have to you know military rhetoric that he's still serving our country you know that uh, you know he's um he should be rewarded with a knighthood you know um for everything he's done i don't i just can't see that he would consider himself like that because he's not in it for himself and i don't understand the ways of thinking in this country that we have to reward action all the time with a, a sort of um uh, you know uh institutional um bestowing of drapery you know drapery and you know sort of um it is hijacking almost hijacking uh the um you know his actions he 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 has done this walk to raise money to help 
uh, frontline workers. On Captain Tom Moore's Just Giving page, it says he's walking 100 lengths of his garden for NHS charities together because our fantastic NHS workers are national heroes. But as one nurse told BBC Panorama earlier this week, calling us heroes makes it okay when we die. Do you think that all this warlike rhetoric, the idea of giving nurses medals being another example, uh, is not just insufficient, but potentially actively harmful? I mean, it's turning them into uh, like martyrs, isn't it? It's like, um, you know, they, they're, they're taking one for the team sort of thing and uh, we'll never forget them, you know, that that in itself. Yeah, that, that yet again is another sort of military uh, mindset because at the end of the day, the simplicity of the situation is, is that NHS workers are doing their job. And they should be able to go and do their job and have the right protection. The bale of veneration at work in calling them heroes is that you're disguising the fact that they're ill-prepared in terms of the resources they have to go into work and do their job. And you can find Cameron's piece in the opinion section of the Varsity website. For this instalment of Varsity Out Loud, we hear from Deputy Editor Olivia Emily, who shares excerpts from her journal, with a piece entitled Documenting Life in Lockdown. 12th of March 2020. This coronavirus is getting serious. I just want to go to John's May Ball. In my one-line-a-day diary, this is the first time I mentioned coronavirus. I was flippant and unconvinced the world would change as dramatically as everyone was predicting. I thought we'd be back next term and the cancelled balls would be merely frustrating reminders of a fleeting virus. I was scared to face the true gravity of a growing pandemic. A few days before, my entries were about sitting in the UL, going to a rowing swap, a friend's birthday formal, bumps and boat club dinner. These ordinary Cambridge traditions, taken for granted then, feel half a world away now. Without my past diary entries to confirm my memories of the pre-pandemic world, I could almost be convinced that I'm remembering dreams I once had, not realities I once lived. With that first entry, I was thinking about what the pandemic meant for my plans. I didn't like the new shadow of uncertainty that was stopping me from seeing what even tomorrow could involve. The entries escalate quickly. 13th of March 2020. My DIS supervisor cancelled our meeting because of coronavirus. 14th of March 2020. Why the heck are my grandparents in Spain right now? 16th of March 2020. I went on a Cambridge appreciation walk today. I really don't want to leave. I had planned to stay in Cambridge over the Easter vacation keen to make the most of spring in my favourite city. We were going to carry on rowing outings in the sun and I was excited to picnic in college surrounded by friends and newly planted flowers. I toyed with the idea of still staying, a little ignorant to how serious the situation was about to become only days later when the government-enforced lockdown would begin. Standing on Orgasm Bridge on one of those final days, Midday, beautiful sunshine and the cam absolutely void of punts. It began to sink in that those smaller plans couldn't happen anymore, even if I did stay. 
I decided to go home, reluctant to shadow a city so full of vibrant memories with new impressions of empty streets, silent nights and loneliness. When I got home, it was difficult to acclimatise to lockdown life and to the seemingly endless, empty future that was stretching out before me. 23rd of March 2020, I edited my dissertation. 24th of March 2020, I watched Titus Andronicus. That's really it. Time is moving differently for me in this new normal and I quickly started losing track of days. My diary is now filled with arrows directing a future reader to the correct dates. I started chronicling dominant thoughts from the day, having forgotten by the end of it what I actually did. On the 30th of March, I wrote, I feel so lethargic. Just that. But at the beginning of April, I pulled myself from my confusion-driven slumber and started to bullet point what I was actually doing with my days. 2nd of April, 2020. I woke up. I ate breakfast, I showered, I edited varsity articles, I watched Gossip Girl, a classic quarantine day. 8th of April 2020, I went running in my new leggings, we had a pub quiz, I made lots of lists of things I could do in the future, I dressed as a tennis mom, a new aesthetic. 19th of April 2020, I'm not entirely sure what I did today, sleeping, reading, lots of daydreaming. Some days are more full than others. Some days I do just watch Netflix and that's okay. Occasionally I feel a rare burst of motivation to do something academic or to think about my career or to just write. My journal means that I can look back on the more mundane Cambridge memories that I would otherwise forget. 22nd of January 2020. Waking up hungover at 9am is, in my opinion, pretty impressive. I probably won't move until 2pm. 5th of February 2020. Today I experienced Cambridge Aldi for the first time and also copped some frozen curly fries. 15th of February 2020. Halfway haul. The food was actually incredible and it was so nice to see so many people that I never get to see. Maybe after this is all over I will look back on my lockdown memories with a similar fondness. The diary I have is actually one line a day for five years, so these empty lockdown days will, in 2025, sit alongside more normal days. Days where time outside isn't restricted and lockdown is a distant memory. Now, just as I wanted, I have mundane memories galore. Hopefully this time next year when I see I finished watching Too Hot to Handle written under the 2020 heading for the 24th of April and I'm a stressed finalist back in Cambridge, I'll take a moment to pause and remember how, just a year before, I was missing things as simple as the library. Next up, we're looking at how One Student Society has taken an innovative approach to staying connected and keeping community spirit during isolation. First and and foremost is Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. We are all talking to each other. It is Ramadan. It's second day. Allah gave us life. We are seeing it. We are smelling it. We are seeing the breeze of it. So I hope, inshallah, everyone is feeling what I am feeling right now. That was the voice of Dr. Haifa Yunus, founder and chairman of the Jannah Institute, speaking during the first of several seminars run by the Cambridge University Islamic Society. Ramadan is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar and marks the time when the Quran is said to have been revealed to the Prophet Muhammad. 
The Islamic calendar is based on the lunar cycle, with the dates of Ramadan varying each year. This year, Ramadan began on Thursday, April 23rd, and is expected to run until Saturday, May 23rd. It is a time for spiritual reflection, with most Muslims fasting from sunrise to sunset, focusing on prayer, doing good deeds, and spending time with family and friends. With Ramadan falling during term time this year, and students being away from Cambridge due to the coronavirus pandemic, we caught up with Rahat Udin, the Cambridge University Islamic Society's publicity officer, to find out how ISOC are marking Ramadan this year. After we found out that we wouldn't be going back to Cambridge for Easter, um, the committee, we had a virtual meeting and we were brainstorming. And then I think one of us, like, you know, virtual reality uh, with computer games. So virtual reality, we sort of spun that into virtual Ramadan. And we sort of planned what would be a viable option uh, for online events. And we've used Zoom and we've used Facebook Live so far. So we've started to plan webinars, um, lectures from various uh, motivational speakers and scholars and whatnot. Overall, it's, it's been going well so far th- with all the plans. They've all been coming into fruition quite well. So we're quite happy with um, how virtual Ramadan is going so far for us. And what sorts of events have happened so far this term? Well, we had one talk by a, a scholar called Dr. Haifa Yunus, and she um, gave us a talk which was called um, The Love of Allah and how to gain a sort of love between you and you know your creator and um that was really insightful and it really opened up our eyes on how the relationship between us and allah is you know usually it's all about it's always emphasized about fear and you know oh don't do this you'll go to hell don't do this you know etc cetera, etc cetera. but that sort of aspect of it you know the love relationship between um you and your creator is very interesting and is often something that is not touched upon. And which events are you looking forward to the most over the next few weeks? Because of how good that spiritual talk was the other day, I'm looking forward to all the next ones. Um, So we've got one on Friday, this Friday, um, which will be led by the Imam of the Cambridge Eco Mosque. One of our former presidents is going to lead for us um, a webinar and um I, I think those sort of educational and motivational talks i'm i'm looking forward to those a lot because I, I find that i take a lot from those and i'm sure everyone else does take a lot from those as well can you tell us a bit more about the ways that isoc are keeping community spirit up while everybody's scattered across the globe yeah so um we've started a uh iftar submission so like we just so we we asked everyone to take pictures of the iftars and send it through to be added onto our instagram highlights we are planning to uh organize some informal revision circles uh, because we are still students at the end of the day (laughs) and um it's nice to be revising together with everybody but there aren't too many other traditions that we've tried to put in place because this is a one-off ramadan we don't want to you know, make this the same every single year. Um, hopefully it doesn't happen again. Uh, yeah, that's all we've done so far. You can find out more about virtual Ramadan as well as the Cambridge University Islamic Society by heading to their Facebook page or website www.isoc.co.uk. Closing out this week's episode is a new segment, The Plug, keeping you in the loop with the hottest events happening across the Cambridge community over the next week.
First up, it's the final week of the Great Kusu Bake Off, and it's time for the Showstopper Challenge. Head over to the Kusu Facebook page on Tuesday, May 5th from 5.30pm to see the Cambridge baking community go all out. Next, Solidarity College Cambridge and the Autonomous Design Group are teaming up to run another workshop this Sunday. Titled Designing a Radical Left Future, the interactive session will provide an insight into how ADG design their radical posters. Check out the Solidarity College Cambridge page for more details. On Friday, May 8th, the QC BME campaign and FLY are running their first virtual care session of Easter term. The event is open to BME students with further details available on the QC BME campaign Facebook page. The Footlight Stand-Up Showcase returns on Tuesday, May 5th to bring you the freshest stand-up comedy each week. Hop over to adctheatre.com forward slash online at 9pm to tune in. And finally, Queen's College JCR have joined forces with Bradford-based charity Lockdown Life Appeal to host the Great Queen's Shave-Off, a sponsored live mass shaving of Queen's students' heads. The Shave-Off will take place on Wednesday, May 6th, and you can find out more by going to the Queen's JCR page. Thanks to everyone who contributed to Switchboard this week. If you're interested in getting involved, please join the Contributors Group, which you can find on our Facebook page. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating. It would mean a lot. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Varsity Switchboard. Switchboard is produced by Olivia Hilton-Pennant and Matt Evan-Green.